on this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Well, I'd say that it's a very scary time for young men in America. So essentially the movement believes that there's discrimination against men and not women. That's right. That has to be the feminazis. That would be the chickification, everything else. You forced me to suffer all my life, and now I'll make you all suffer. (laughs) In the years I spent hitchhiking across America... One of the most memorable men I met was a lonely trucker named Jimmy, who took me and my traveling buddies all the way from the Mojave Desert to Santa Fe, New Mexico, in an enormous 18-wheeler. We got along so well that we ended up staying at his house for the whole weekend, playing country songs for each other. The songs Jimmy wrote were tough, honky-tonk rock and roll, raspy, rough, and, well, manly. But Jimmy had a secret. One night, after a little drinking, he shyly took out a hidden box full of unmarked CDs, and without looking at us in the eyes, he asked if he could play one of the songs he wrote and recorded but never shared with anyone. A sad song, he said, with a shrugging disdain for himself. So many of the men I rode with over those years, the men I was told to fear, instead of harming me, they told me their secrets. They scratched their thumbnails nervously against the leather steering wheels, and sometimes they cried, or at least their eyes grew red-ringed with a shine of tears. With only the briefest chance at this anonymous confessional, it was as if they were desperate to get things out. And as they talked, they transformed with a shocking ease into the little boys they once were. Here, in this stretch of 20 minutes, an hour, or seven, I learned a lesson over and over again. So many of America's men are desperately lonely and desperately sad, unable to talk about their feelings. You make me want to be a better man, Jimmy sang in the chorus in a deep, low voice. And you could hear how badly he wanted to make it true. Now, don't get me wrong here. Out on the road like this, I was very lucky. I've always been lucky, until, like all women, I wasn't. For this episode, we are going to travel to the toxic depths of the men's rights movement and involuntary celibacy internet forums where a seething hatred of women, a nauseating entitlement, and an extreme self-loathing smolder together on message boards, a combination of ideologies that helped produce the incel terrorists like 22-year-old Elliot Roger. To make sense of all this, we'll look briefly at the construction of our brand of American masculinity and how the three waves of feminism affected the relationship between the genders, culminating in the modern men's rights movement, both online and even in the highest levels of political discourse that still espouses the belief that it's not men, but the feminazis who are the true evil oppressors at work, and that a fight clubian return to the old manhood is the answer to their discontent. But we'll see, too, that it hasn't always been this way that the first men's movement worked hand-in-hand with women's liberation. In order to address the current state of these gender wars, we'll need to look not only at how toxic masculinity continues to harm victims of its violence through cycles of anger, resentment, and revenge, but also at the unfair demands it places on those trapped inside it. Those learning, as little boys, what it means to be a real man. Hi, Elliot Roger here. You girls have never been attracted to me. 
I don't know why you girls aren't attracted to me, but I will punish you all for it. It's an injustice, a crime, because I don't know what you don't see in me. I'm the perfect guy. And yet you throw yourselves at all these obnoxious men instead of me, the supreme gentleman. On May 23rd, 2014, this 22-year-old Pokemon-obsessed, designer sunglass-wearing, narcissistic supervillain wannabe named Elliot Roger recorded a bizarre final YouTube video called Retribution from the dashboard of his black BMW before going on a shooting spree that killed six people and injured 14. His target was what he considered the most attractive and popular girls of a sorority, vowing revenge on women in general who he blamed for his virginity and his unrelenting loneliness. After pounding on the door of the sorority house and receiving no answer, he killed two women and a man walking down the sidewalk and injured a third before he began just shooting at random. And then, chased by the police, he eventually committed suicide. Immediately after the shooting, Roger's online life took center stage, especially his deeply embarrassing and, for lack of a better word, cringeworthy YouTube channel, which included that final video. He would also email out his memoir manifesto to his therapist, parents, and a few others called My Twisted World, in which he detailed his childhood, his teendom, and his young adult life in an excruciating 140 pages, telling of his extremely mild humiliations, including the time he got made fun of for skateboarding. But in addition to this narcissistic retrospective, he also details some extremely dark fantasies. Like the one about all the world's women being quarantined and starved to death in concentration camps or used for breeding, finally accessible to men like Roger. He writes, quote, I would have an enormous tower built just for myself where I could oversee the entire concentration camp and gleefully watch them all die. As people talk about incel, it made me wonder, you might call this a new phenomenon, but is it really new and is it any really different than the type of misogyny that we have seen for decades? It's not. It was Roger's killing spree that introduced America to incels, a multifaceted online community who identify as involuntarily celibate, those that want sex and relationships but seem unable to achieve that goal. It's true that much of the incel community is not like Elliot Roger, not like those who celebrate Elliot Roger, and certainly not the handful of incels that would go on to copy his crimes. But there are many who do combine a deep self-loathing with a dangerous ideology that they are the true nice guys and that beautiful women owe them sex. But instead, these Stacys, as they call them, go for the classic archetypal teen TV trope of the dumb, mean, beefy jock that they've nicknamed Chad Thundercock. Elliot Roger saw Stacy's as the root of all evil and of the pain that he and his fellow incels suffered, simultaneously desiring and loathing the women that were promised to them as a kind of male birthright. These women have been cruelly dangled in front of those who identify as geeks or nerds or in Roger's particular brand of narcissistic hyperbole supreme gentlemen like himself that simply did not live up to the masculine standards of these sluts. His status in life, what caused his anger, resentment, and then revenge, like so many incels, had been encapsulated in the creepiest early memes, known appropriately as rage comics, epitomized in one of the most famous of the last 10 years, a disfigured face with a thin blue trickle of tears, with the text that says, 
forever alone. So let's go back to the conquering and colonizing of America when white masculinity, the kind of masculinity we'll be focusing on today because it went on to define masculinity in general, especially in the men's rights movement, found its definition on the frontier in the strength it took to battle the indigenous, to hunt, to kill, and to do all of this with as little emotion as possible. Masculinity was based in monetary competition, in winning, in being the best. And as we know, white men did prevail and secure their place at the top of the hierarchy. But they were second to the rich plantation owners. For more on that, you can check out our Rednecks episode. As the Civil War and the Industrial Revolution changed everything about America, so too it changed everything about the culture's relationship to men. A man who would have once been his own self-sufficient machine became a lever inside a far larger, far more exploitive machine. Work became monotonous, dangerous, grueling, unrewarding, and their families still lived in poverty because the wages were terrible. Nonetheless, work remained an almost singular source of pride and purpose, and as women began entering the workforce and obtaining the right to vote, this fragile male dignity ran even thinner, and the hatred of feminism and women's rights burned hot, just as it does today. A California high school has the well-nigh perfect answer to the president's call for physical fitness. The boys at La Sierra are learning that it's not only good sense to get toughened up, it's fun. By the beginning of the 1900s, we see the emergence of the alpha male, the jock, the Chad Thundercock, so hated by our modern incels. These sporty boys emerged through Teddy Roosevelt, who went from being known as a beta, a quote, young squirt, and punkin' lily, to a true man through the outings with other men in faraway nature where they'd camp, ride horses, rope cattle, grab ass around, and do other general things that would get rid of their feminine sides developed through the Industrial Revolution. For more on that, check out our episode on quackery. After he proved his masculinity to America and became much more successful for it, he made it a part of his life's work to support football and other sports as necessary to define true manhood and to identify the sissies of art and education, the weaklings, who were seen by this newly beefy America as geeks and nerds, feminine, worthless, and gay. And those traits were further solidified when psychotherapy started to pathologize and stigmatize these less than manly men. In the 1930s, on the heels of Sigmund Freud, a psychologist and eugenicist named Lewis Madison Terman created something called the Masculine Feminine Test, or the MF Test, a series of questions and exercises, including Rorschach inkblot and exhaustive question and answer tests, that were to determine where a person fell on the gender identity spectrum with feminine men and masculine women women considered as potential gays, ill-suited for marriage, breadwinning, and happiness in general. I tragically could not find and take the test myself, but the results would have been enough to furrow the brows of psychotherapists and parents alike. Here are some sample questions I found, mostly in the true or false format. True or false, it is silly to let others see your emotions. Girls are naturally more innocent than boys. Brains and beauty do not go together. Women are purer than men by nature. Do you rather dislike to take your bath? Have you ever kept a diary? Red goes best with black, lavender, pink, or purple. By the way, the only masculine answer to that last question was the color black. If test takers scored too far in the opposite gender's direction, the doctors intervened, pushing the artistic boys to participate instead in roughhousing with other boys, and the tomboy girls were made to wear frilly dresses and disallowed from tree climbing. 
Parents were expected to continue this process, and they became responsible for molding their kids in the right direction, often using tactics of shame. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. Despite their best efforts at asserting this rugged masculinity of yore, by the 1950s, the middle class began residing largely in the safety of the suburbs, a feminine space, with men stuck in boring office jobs that held even less masculinity than the pre-war industrial years. The rise of consumer capitalism continued to define manhood by the amount of money a man could make, by the comfortable life they could provide for an obedient, feminine wife and their gender-appropriate children. But entering the 1960s, a second wave of feminism, known as the Women's Liberation Movement, was becoming more and more mainstream. And there we see the roots of the men's rights movement that we know today. Originally, what was called the men's liberation movement was not in contest with feminism, was not an enemy of women, but instead allied in a fight against the rigid gender roles that both identified as the basis of their suffering. The primary role of women as the archetypal stay-at-home mothers became a growing source of anger from those women it restricted from work, but also for those that felt the opposite pressure, men who were the sole breadwinners and weren't presented with the cultural option to split the cost of living or be stay-at-home fathers themselves. While the inherent caregiving of the home allowed women a certain emotionality, the workplace, by design, was an emotionless space. But these men's libbers wanted deeper relationships with their families, wanted meaningful friendships with other men, and wanted to be able to express their emotions without being shamed. To join the old and new masculinity, they headed to the woods, of course, sitting around campfires and sharing emotionally with each other. They believed that as they deprogrammed society's view of what men were supposed to be, it would help women's liberation as well. There was a great balance possible. If women wanted to work, then the burden would be lessened for men. And if men were willing to step back from work, women could have the freedom to work if they wanted, and everyone would win. 
A man named Warren Farrell was the major architect of the men's liberation movement, and his writing and speaking was so appreciated by feminists at the time that he was asked by the National Organization for Women to create more of his men's groups, and eventually he was invited to join the board. In his book, The Liberated Man, written from a feminist perspective, he said that women were certainly labeled sex objects, but also noted that men were usually considered success objects. He became famous, cruising through the talk show circuit, writing columns for the New York Times. He continued to express that it was the gender roles, this construct that society had passed down, that needed to be combated by feminists and men's libbers working together, not as enemies, but as a team. Farrell and other men's rights activists have often pointed to legitimate grievances, usually around the way America treats men as disposable. In some ways, men have been disposable in our culture, as the majority of blue-collar workers in dangerous jobs, as the majority of fallen soldiers in our many wars, as those who now face battles for custody in court systems that default toward the mother, as those who experience higher rates of suicide and depression, as those living with a lack of emotional support for their own domestic abuses and sexual assaults that are largely unrecognized, or even even made fun of. These are valid and important issues to be sure, even though the statistics around them are often exaggerated by the modern MRAs. Focusing on these oppressions, the vulnerability-focused men's liberation movement grew more and more embittered toward the volume of feminist voices, and the soft-spoken feminist Warren Farrell would turn on the very foundation of his philosophy. Both sexes have disappointed fantasies, and what we've done for the last 25 years is I only, fi- I only focus on women's experience of powerlessness. How can you talk about women's a sense of powerlessness and equate it with men when there are only four women in the Senate? When, if you look at the number of CEOs in this country mm-hmm. who make more than $500,000 a year, you will rarely find a woman. Or, there or, aren't many women heading Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. During the 1970s, the conversation around women's rights became largely about the prevalence of rape and sexual assault, a topic that had rarely been discussed prior. Now, women were talking about the everyday behaviors of individual men, the behaviors of the very men who saw themselves as in solidarity. And this wasn't something that these early MRAs wanted to discuss or be held accountable for. This thing called feminism was getting out of hand. Suddenly, the question was about sex and the rights of women to refuse. Men were watching other men be called out for their actions individually, and it was both scary and infuriating. By 1991, Anita Hill would formally accuse George Bush's Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of workplace sexual harassment before the Senate Judiciary Committee in a direct precursor to the Brett Kavanaugh hearing in September of 2018. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. Because I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all, and particularly in such a graphic way, I told him that I did not want to talk about these subjects. Though her testimony ignited a Me Too-esque social movement, as usual, it didn't matter much politically. Thomas was appointed anyway and remains on the Supreme Court to this day, just like Brett Kavanaugh will for decades to come. Nevertheless, Anita Hill's testimony shed a harsh light on the plight of everyday women and on the actions of men, especially concerning unwanted sexual advances, sexual advances that masculinity in general had told men that they were entitled to. And of course, they didn't see what the big deal was. 
The Violence Against Women Act came in 1993, which required the nation's law enforcement to treat gendered violence and things like marital rape as crimes and not just domestic issues, adding legal protections for victims of sexual assault and expanding services to survivors. That same year, Warren Farrell was back with a much more scathing critique of feminism, claiming that it was women, not men, that now held the majority of the power in America with his book called The Myth of Male Power. What we know as the modern men's rights movement begins here, now in direct opposition to third-wave feminism. Those who were focused on the plights of masculinity had previously sought solace in one another, redefining what it meant to be a man in America through self-reflection, communication, and emotional education. Instead of working against ingrained gender roles for the liberation of all, they wanted to make masculinity great again. The magic tablets of their manhood had been stolen, and so had the things that were promised to them as white men at birth—money, supremacy, admiration, and sex. Over the next 20 years, as the internet exploded and men could gather in greater and greater numbers in anonymous forums, there would be a phasing out of this hugging, of this communication, of this camaraderie, as a new sea of men let the sadness of forever alone memes turn into resentment for women at large and finally into revenge. <laughs> On the day of retribution, you will finally see that I am, in truth, the superior one, the true alpha male. I'll give you exactly what you deserve, all of you. The incel culture, of which Elliot Roger was a part, is as diverse as any subculture, and they aren't all vicious trolls by a long shot. That said, the more radical side of this movement has grown substantially over the years and has become intertwined with the alt-right, creating a hotbed of misogyny, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and the extreme glorification of violence against women, with language that we're mostly going to spare you today. They use a term called the Red Pill, a reference to the 1999 film The Matrix, in which Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, is offered two pills, one blue, which will allow him to return to his previous life in an ignorant bliss, and one red, which will reveal the harsh truth about the Matrix that we're all living in. Neo chooses the red pill, and the revelations are terrifying— but he would rather see it all than be lulled into a false reality. MRAs see the red pill as waking up to the tyranny of feminism, to seeing their own oppression as it really is. By these principles, any slights against women are fair game. It's a righteous fight against the oppressor who they believe has all the privilege, and most especially the privilege of sexual freedom, leaving these men without the sex they believe they're inherently owed. It's that classic cognitive dissonance we've talked about so many times in which oppressive forces psychologically transform themselves into victims. After taking this red pill, they begin to see toxic masculinity as the only way to get the sex they deserve from the women they call sluts, whores, and far, far worse. Those they consider to be deserving of rape and even brutal murder if they don't oblige. Many of these more radical incels believe that their lack of physical masculinity has sidelined them away from the shallow women who go for these idiot beefcakes and ignore, in Elliot Rogers' words, supreme gentlemen like him. More after this. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts, 
or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Surprisingly, the first person to coin the term involuntarily celibate was a woman now scared to reveal her identity, known only as Alana. In 1993, Alana found herself very lonely as a queer woman in her mid-20s, so she started a website called the Involuntary Celibacy Project to help others who felt like her form intimate and meaningful relationships, described as an inclusive community for people of all genders who were sexually deprived due to social awkwardness, marginalization, or mental illness. And originally, that's exactly what happened. Save for the vocal frustrations of some men, Alana said the website in its original form was a very friendly place to express feelings of loneliness and to encourage conversations around those feelings and possibly even find romance with other incels. Two people who met on the site even ended up getting married. It wasn't until the rampage of Elliot Roger that Alana picked up a newspaper and saw the word she coined, incel, being used as a justification for his murders, as well as this whole community now steeped in rape, assault, and murder fantasies that are so much worse than you think they could ever be. Descriptions that will likely stay with me and the rest of our team for our entire lives. The world of this new brand of incel is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, one where angry men interact daily with other angry men, one-upping each other in a contest of just who is the least likely to ever attract a woman due to a lack of financial success that's required by these gold diggers, but even more often due to an oppression they call lookism. This self-perpetuating toxic cycle is known to psychologists as digital self-harm. One user posts, quote, Candid photo of my profile reveals my subhumanity. I don't even leave the house anymore. I don't want to be seen. One user asks in a common thread called Rate My Face, What surgeries and implants are needed to fix this? As you can see, I have a recessed jaw slash chin. And then the responses flood in, naming a slew of the same man's physical problems beyond just the ones he thought he had, and also surgical solutions. Quote, orthonathic surgery if you can afford it, chin implants if you can't. You should also look at jaw angle implants. Just as the masculine-feminine test of the mid-20th century stated, A square jaw indicates willpower. A weak chin represents weak character. Since the 90s, the rate of male cosmetic surgeries has tripled as men follow in the footsteps of women who've long been victim to the pressures of beauty standards. And of course, there are lots of cultural benefits to being attractive. But most of the average-looking men who entered these forums come out feeling so much worse about themselves. But in these same forums, women are hypocritically reduced to their looks, called fat, ugly, not blonde enough, not curvy enough, categorized by skin color, the way their genitals look because of the time they've spent on the cock carousel. The irony here doesn't matter to them because this self-hatred is reinforced with the opposite notion that men, no matter how they look, are simply better than the women they want and deserve to look down from their Elliot Rogerian towers and see women acting out their most depraved fantasies to see women finally getting what they deserve. And then another man one-ups them all and posts that women's obsession with looks has, quote, driven many of us who don't fit their standards to anger and homicidal tendencies. In the last handful of years, four mass murders have been committed in North America by those who are involved in the incel culture, with a total of 45 deaths in addition to terror campaigns against any woman daring to write about feminism, in which their personal details are leaked, leading to death and rape threats showing up in their email, on their social media, their voicemails, and even at their home addresses. 
So what in the absolute hell is going on? Let's look at what I consider to be the most important grievance of the men's rights movement, the rarely talked about shockingly high suicide rate for men. Listen to this. 77% of the 45,000 people who die from suicide every year in the United States are men. Not only that, but a recently conducted study that interviewed 1,500 men ages 18 to 30 found that one in five had thought about suicide in the past two weeks. Through survey questions, the researchers found that those most likely to consider suicide were also those who held the strongest beliefs about masculinity, the need to appear tough and to never talk about their feelings. This is the exact reason why so many men don't seek help for depression and anxiety. It's not easy to go against an entire cultural narrative to seek the help you need. Psychologists have long observed that unexpressed sadness soon turns to anger, and anger that is dwelled on for a long period of time contorts itself into something far more dangerous, resentment. Resentment is an obsession with those who the injured party believe to be at fault for their pain, and it can become pathological, the backdrop to an entire personal story, an identity. Then, whatever reaction on their part, no matter how vile, is deserved, because women are the bad ones victimizing them first. Striking back becomes noble, and the next stage of resentment becomes an outward expression of revenge. And Elliot Rogers' killing spree is applauded by the most radicalized MRAs and incels as the Day of Retribution. We would like to think that as the nation slowly changes the definitions of masculinity, the more brutal ideology of the MRAs is staying in its corners deep in the recesses of the Internet. But in fact, these ideas are still in the highest levels of political conversation. One of the big boys of the men's rights movement's most despicable rhetoric is none other than the man given the presidential Medal of Freedom by Donald Trump in 2020, radio host Rush Limbaugh of Conservative Talk Radio, which is basically Internet forums for baby boomers. The term we hear frequently today, feminazi, was popularized by Limbaugh in 2012 when an activist named Sandra Fluck joined an all-male panel of theologians and clergy to debate in favor of religious colleges providing birth control coverage through student health plans. Birth control that out-of-pocket was very expensive for women, women who wanted to practice safe sex, but also women who needed birth control for medical conditions that require hormonal aid. Here's what Limbaugh had to say about that. I said, if we're paying for this, it makes these women sluts, prostitutes. And what else could it be? Who bought your condoms in junior high? Who bought your condoms in the sixth grade? So Ms. Fluke and the rest of you feminazis, here's the deal. If we are going to pay for your contraceptives and thus pay for you to have sex, we want something for it. And I'll tell you what it is. We want you to post the videos online so we can all watch. (laughs) I'm going broke having sex. How did Sandra Fluck respond? Certainly not in the free speech stifling horrors that marked Nazi Germany and gave feminists their new namesake. Quote, We are fortunate to live in a democracy where everyone is entitled to their own opinions regarding legitimate policy differences. Unfortunately, numerous commentators have gone far beyond the acceptable bounds of civil discourse. Oh, and she also clarified that the use of taxpayer money had never been discussed. Rush Limbaugh believes that feminism was, quote, established so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. In 2004, when a large number of these feminists came out to protest against sexual harassment, what did Limbaugh have to say? Quote, 
They're out there protesting what they actually wish would happen to them sometimes. The Presidential Medal of Freedom was placed around the neck of this talk radio star by a president who's racked up a whopping 25 accusations of sexual assault and harassment since the 1970s. A man who's implied several times that the women who made those accusations were too ugly for him to want to assault. And instead, stating that the men and the boys of our nation are the ones in real trouble, as women came armed with false accusations in the words of Rush Limbaugh to quote, D-ball America. Perhaps one of the most telling questions of the masculine-feminine test is this one. Have you ever been unjustly punished? If you answer yes, that's a point for masculinity. And the feminazis are coming for you, too. Perhaps the most important film to far-right MRAs, aside from The Matrix, is Fight Club, the 1999 David Fincher cult classic adapted from Chuck Palahniuk's novel of the same name. For those who may not remember, the basic plot is this. Edward Norton plays the unnamed narrator of the story, essentially presented as the classic beta male, accepting with a shrug the Ikea-laden, meaningless, sad state of his life. Eventually, he meets alpha male Tyler Durden, played by a ridiculously hot Brad Pitt, who lives the way the narrator wishes he could live, with freedom, reckless abandon, and a kind of nihilism in which he prophetizes about going back to a time before civilization, to a time before industrialization, where men could be men without the feminizing aspects that came with that industrial revolution. The narrator eventually moves in with Durden and starts a transformation, joining the hyper-masculine cultish group called Fight Club, in which men beat each other black and blue to return to some primal idea of masculinity. Becoming an agent of chaos like Tyler Durden, the narrator joins in on his other club, Project Mayhem, with their increasingly transgressive political acts that make up the other side of Fight Club, culminating in the explosions of several financial institutions that have feminized the modern man through consumer capitalism. But how sincere a film is this? Is this the story that gay author Chuck Palahniuk was trying to tell? Nope. The entire novel is a satire about toxic masculinity. Before meeting Tyler Durden, the narrator spends his nights at cancer support groups, where, although he's not sick himself, he would go to listen to people cry, to cry himself, to hug guys and hear their stories. And each night after he attends these groups, his horrible insomnia is cured and he's finally able to sleep. When a woman, another cancer faker in the group called Marla, shows an interest in the narrator, he treats her with disdain and cruelty, despite his clear desire to connect with her. And this is about the point that he meets Tyler Durden. He pivots back and forth from his beta to his alpha Chadian persona, ultimately fighting with and killing Tyler Durden, only to realize that, spoiler alert, he was a figment of his own insomniac imagination, the most toxic part of his own masculinity that pulled him out of those emotional support groups and into destructive chaos, an apt metaphor for the movement from men's liberation to men's rights, from the confessional campfires of the woods to the cruelest corners of the internet, where this chaotic destruction of the self and others is the most valued trait of manhood. Just like the narrator, they've created online alter egos to express the most broken parts of themselves. The film and book also aptly address the deep, real problems that men face, disposability in a nation that's long valued them for the money they make. 
the minuscule income gains of the middle and lower classes since the 1970s have been nothing if not egregious. And it's still a huge part of why men suffer disproportionate depression and suicide. Men are still struggling under this system that they are told defines their worth, a system that was created by a legacy of other, richer men in a nation where the gap between the rich, middle and lower classes continues to grow wider. But if we address the MRA's at least partially legitimate grievances, we can see that it's not feminists who stoked the pitfalls of capitalism that called for mass male deaths in war, that designed the laws that would make it difficult for men to get custody of their children, that made it unacceptable for men to talk publicly about their own sexual assaults and their feelings at large. In fact, it's been feminists that have been critiquing these things and fighting against labor exploitation since the early 1900s. Even now, Alana, the original incel, continues to fight for the health of our nation's loneliest men, creating a new website called Love Not Anger, a project to research how, quote, lonely people might find respectful love instead of being stuck in anger. But it is still the responsibility of men to change. Women and non-binary people can't do it for them. And many of us are exhausted from trying, even scared to keep trying. But there are many who do recognize that we can work together to change the way that ideas of gender negatively affect all of us. There is no excuse for the harm that women have endured for centuries. And there are certainly those who will never be willing to change. And they will suffer for it as we march into our inevitable future without them, as their resentment at the new, more equal America locks them away, forever alone in Elliot Rogers' sick, strange tower. We can fight and fight over statistics and stories, over who is to blame, over who's the villain and who is the victim. And of course, I hold my own opinions. But I try to remember that every one of these men, each and every one of them, started out as a little boy. I saw it in the red-ringed eyes of the men who picked me up hitchhiking, their shyness, their deep need to share their feelings, to connect. The good news is that our men and boys are becoming more conscious of the toxic nature of their own masculinity, more willing to become stay-at-home dads or at least share the burdens of work and domesticity. And psychologists have noticed that it's actually leading to higher levels of marital happiness and lower levels of depression for both men and women. But in many cases, the traits of young sons that don't fit into the old construct of masculinity are strong-armed out of them, and they're molded into their new identities, identities that may not truly be their own, just as young men were after taking the masculine-feminine test in the mid-1900s. Elliot Roger, Warren Farrell, Rush Limbaugh, and even Donald Trump were once staring up at the fathers and mothers that believed in these traditional gender roles, who stared up at their own parents and their own parents before that, who told these boys to stop crying, to stop hugging other boys, to man up, to fight, to treat women as sex objects and themselves as success objects. And, most importantly, to avoid any and all humiliation, whatever the cost may be. For much of Elliot Rogers' bizarre manifesto, he talks about himself as a child. And he somehow seems to understand the problem, but misses the point. Quote, Boys and girls start out the same. We all start out innocent and we all start out together. Only through the experiences and circumstances of growing up do we drift apart, form allegiances, and face each other as enemies. Robert Bly, a poet and one of the other principal architects of the men's liberation movement, once said, speaking sympathetically of the male plight, quote, Unless he has an enemy, he isn't sure that he is alive. It's time to define what, not who the enemy really is, 
and perhaps it's a common enemy for both men and women. As Bell Hooks writes in her sympathetic look at men's issues called The Will to Change, quote, No man successfully measures up to patriarchal standards without engaging in an ongoing practice of self-betrayal. True strength, not brute strength, comes from no longer betraying the self, from being brave enough to turn away from inherited anger and resentment, to strong-arm oneself out of a cycle, and defining the new masculinity. It can be whatever we want, and we get to design it together, keeping some parts and tossing out the others, helping our men and boys access the positive parts of not only masculinity, but of femininity that they are entitled to as well. That weekend in Santa Fe, we were all there for Jimmy, but he had to be the one brave enough, strong enough, tough enough, manly enough to face what he was scared of, to take a deep breath and pull his sadness out from its corner, to show us his loneliness. You make me want to be a better man, the chorus said again, and all us saps got teary-eyed. You really like it? He asked, his voice cracking. We love it, we said. We really love it. When we left the next day in the early morning, stepping out into the mist, we turned around to see him standing there at the door, eyes ringed in red, an enormous trucker growing smaller and smaller behind us as we walked, until he looked to me like a little boy. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, you'll get part one of our two-part series called Outrage Culture. Take a deep breath. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight for this episode is called A Call to Men, which educates men all over the world on healthy, respectful manhood. It's a violence prevention organization and respected leader on issues of manhood, male socialization, and its intersection with violence. If you'd like to donate, please head to the link in our bio or go to acalltomen.org. One of the biggest things you can do to support American Hysteria is to head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. It helps the show out so much. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and written by Riley Smith, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers. I'd like to thank two listeners for their help and expertise on this episode, Giovanna Blankenberg, D. Boaventura, and H.T. Coyote. Thanks, as always, for listening. And if I can give you one piece of advice this week, it's this. Just don't read the entirety of Elliot Rogers' manifesto. Have a great week. Young Squirt, Pumpkin Lily. Young Squirt, Pumpkin Lily. Young Squirt, Pumpkin Lily. Young Squirt, Pumpkin Lily. Young squirt, young squirt, punkin' lily. <laughs> <laughs>